This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let us get to the budget, though, because this was uh, budget day is always a big day in Canada. I don't know that today was an earth-shattering, groundbreaking, seismic affair financially, but the person who can tell us whether it was is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, who is always our go-to guy for matters of finance and economics. He joins us now. Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Just before we get to the serious stuff, a favorite game show moment of mine in the history of game shows, on the old $64,000 question to spice up the ratings, they periodically would have a celebrity appear. And this one night, Jack Benny, the late Jack Benny, appears. And in this game, they ask you a series of questions, and you can stop at any time and keep the money or go on. And it began with a $2 question. His category was violins, as you know. He was a he, he was sort of a, an amateur violinist in his day. And they asked the question. He got it right. It's about the Stradivarius violin. He got $2. And the host asked him if he'd risk that money to try for $4. And it took Jack Benny about five minutes. You know, $2, <laughs> sure, versus $4 risk. And he kept the $2 and walked off the show. Well, you know, that's $2 you didn't have before he showed up. Exactly. I mean, As an economist... A real stingy kind of guy. He just couldn't give up the sure $2, even if the next question was worth 4 As an economist, that would be something I would think that you would have applauded. Well, <laughs> yes, it's always about the risk-reward <laughs> trade-off, for sure. Let us get to um, Mr. Uh, Murnau, Finance Minister Bill Murnau's budget today. Uh, some things, we're going to have to move quickly through this, but there's some winners, there's some losers, there's some people who are going to be happy, there's some people who might not be. Uh, Marvin, as I looked over this one, it seemed to me the biggest obvious winners could be parents. Yes, in a way. So let me come at this maybe a little differently than you had planned, and then we'll just jump on board here. I think Mr. Morneau was having a Kevin Day as well here today. He had to come up with a budget, but he didn't have any degrees of freedom. He announced all the goodies last year. So you remember last year you got the middle income uh, tax cut, all that savings. And by the way, here was that new tax we're going to give to the very wealthy. They're going to make them pay they did some things around child care, and they've announced that some more good things around child care and more child care programs. Today, they also announced a little bit more spending for Aboriginal people. But the bottom line was he didn't have any money to throw around. So what he basically did was reannounced all the things that he announced last year, did not really uh, spend that much more money, oh, a few little things, but nothing of serious consequence. And he didn't really add any new revenue streams, or at least of consequence, so a loser today, well, if you do like to drink and you do like to have a cigarette, another 2% increase in the taxes on that. If you like to buy Canada savings bonds as a vehicle for your children, starting in July, they're no longer going to be issued. After nearly 70 years, Canada savings bonds are a thing of the past. The government has better ways of raising money. But other than those kinds of things, there just really wasn't much in this budget because that infrastructure bill, that idea that they were going to stimulate the economy with nearly $100 billion on infrastructure over 10 years, they're just in year two of that. They're keeping their powder dry. All right. Let me get to the, the parent thing in just a minute then because you raised the idea of taxing the rich. This was going to be one of the things. The middle class was going to be raised up because we were going to tax the snot out of the rich people right. in this country. Uh, they kind of took a pass on that today. Again, when people thought that there was going to be some new tax put on the rich, that was bypassed. Right. So the new tax on the rich wasn't really a new tax, but it was a new way of treating two kinds of uh, income. One is called capital gains. So if I buy a stock and then it goes up in value and I sell it, the difference between what I buy and sell is called a capital gain. And today what happens is only half of that amount is considered taxable income. The other half is, in essence, forgiven. You don't have to pay tax on it. 
And there was a trial balloon floated that said they might increase that from a 50% you taxed on to 75% you taxed on. The other thing they talked about doing was uh, dividends. If you have stock and it pays a dividend, you get a preferential treatment of the dividends because, again, we wanted to incent you to put your money in the market. But it's only the rich people who have this kind of extra money. So the thought was they were going to change that. This is one of those things where the government looks good because it didn't do either of those things. There were a lot of people who were concerned that, I know what you're saying, it's rich people, but Marvin, there's a lot of retirees who've got money invested in stocks and bonds and dividend-paying instruments. You're not just going to go after the wealthy if you change this. So they, they threatened to do so, but because they didn't do so, we all take a deep breath and say, ah, oh, thank goodness for that. Seven billion dollars uh, is going to be now spent on child care. And again, that's where I came from the top when I said that parents may be the big winners here. However, a question for you on this one. On its face, that for a lot of people is going to sound great. We're going to now have lots more daycare. I think they said like 140,000 more daycare spaces or something like it's a crazy number that they're going to add. Why does every single government always feel they know how to run your life better than you do. Why not simply take that money and say, we're going to give a $7 billion tax break to parents to spend that money on daycare or on childcare or on books or on whatever, as you would see fit to spend it? Why are they deciding where the money's going to go? Mm-hmm. Well, it really is the government who tries to set some social policy And their concern in all of this, remember Justin Trudeau bills himself as a feminist, is that today there is a difference between men and women, and that often comes down to their role in child care. And for some lower-income families, uh, while you might like to use child care so that the husband and wife can both work equally and contribute to the family, the reality is that some of it is just very, very expensive. There, There just is not enough spaces to handle with all the children out there. So what the government says is we're going to spend this money. Now, a little star here. Yes, it's $7 billion, but read the fine print. It's over the next, I think it's 10 years, maybe even 11 years. So it works out to be you know, six, $700 million a year. It's still a lot of money, but it's not really $7 billion in the year ahead. It's only six or $700 million. We're going to create more spaces. If we create more spaces, then women who feel they have to stay at home to raise the children, they'll now have the option, and they can participate equally. This budget today was the first budget ever in Canadian history that had 26 pages of the text, 26 pages of the text that was dedicated to analyzing how this budget would affect men and women, where it would be different, and what the government was doing to try to equalize that. Are you a cynic or are you a believer? Do you look at that and you say, hey, that's fantastic, or do you look and say, that's a way to, for a government to maybe win some brownie points? It's a way for the government to win some brownie points when you've got nothing else to show. So, again, the budget today was very thin. It's a Kevin kind of budget. They took a swing and they missed, but they got to do something, so they added this section. I think it's a wonderful section. I think it's wonderful that the government is thinking about it, but why did they do it this year? Why not last year? Why not next year? They just didn't have much else to talk about. Now, I was reading a piece in the Globe today that the the Globe writer had been in, in lockup and sequestration waiting for the budget to come out, and he or she, I'm not sure, Uh, wrote this about small businesses, and this is a quote. It's pretty obvious. This is from uh, tax expert Kim Moody, who reviewed the budget for the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. It's pretty obvious that private companies and their families are under the radar and under attack. There's a perception out there, certainly with academics and some pockets of government, that private corporations are inadvertently used to save tax or defer tax 
And I think a lot of that is not true, but the government intends to look at that and make their own determination. The reason I bring this up, there were some loopholes that seemingly were closed with small businesses, and they may not amount to all that much as far as actual money, but the perception, Marvin, that seems to be in this is, look, we're a government, we're throwing money all over the place. Why are we finding nickel and dime loopholes in small businesses to go after as opposed to bigger things? No, exactly. That's a very good point. And there are, there were a couple of others. I'll just add to your list before I answer your question. Uh, if you had been claiming the uh, uh, public transit tax credit, if you're a public transit user, you could deduct 15% of the cost of public transit on your taxes. That's going to go the way of the dodo bird. Um, there, there was a, another couple of, of investment credits that were out there. They're going to go away. Now, they amount to $20 million here, $30 million here. And I don't mean to poo-poo this, but in the scope of a federal budget, $20 million, it doesn't even make the bottom line. You know, we round to the nearest billion, so it gets lost yeah. in the efforts. So with the small business in particular, I, I just, again, I, the government, I think, felt they had to do something. They wanted to do something that wouldn't really have much impact. And somebody, some bureaucrat, seized upon this. If small business people can make enough noise and say, no, 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 we really want this back, this is a government that will gladly give it back. It just doesn't cost them anything one way or another. Why do it now? I just think it was something that probably someone had on a list that, look, we've got to close a couple of these loopholes. We've got nothing else to do this year. Why don't we do that? So it's about perception. Right. It's a perception that I'm doing good things and I'm busy and look at all the good work I'm doing when, in fact, I can't do any work because I'm hamstrung. Maybe I should also add this, Scott. You know, south of the border, we've talked about this before, there's been a bit of a change in the uh, White House. And Mr. Trump is saying all kinds of things. We don't quite know what they all mean. This budget has come down really less than two months after Mr. Trump was inaugurated. I think the document to watch this year is not this budget, but the economic update this fall. By that point, we'll have had six, seven, eight months of a Trump administration under our belts, and we'll know whether our federal government, the Canadian federal government, needs to have some money in reserve to do some damage control. If today they had come out and promised all kinds of different actions, and then Donald comes out and does all kinds of things that might harm the Canadian economy, they wouldn't have any war chest, any money in reserve that they could use to offset that. So, for instance, Donald has said he wants to dramatically cut tax rates for businesses. Uh, right now, there was no change here north of the border. We already have a fairly low tax rate on businesses. But if Donald does something aggressive, then maybe in October you're going to hear the government say, well, we're going to cut the rates by another 1% or 2%. And for small business, what they do with that tax rate more than offsets what they're losing through some of these loopholes. But they didn't do it today. They don't want to do it if they don't have to do it. And they don't yet know whether they have to do it until Donald's a little more established. So I think this is, again, why this was a stand-pat budget. This is just not the time for them to announce issues until they know what our biggest neighbor, that elephant just south of the border, is going to do. Just before we go, uh, there was, back when they were elected, I believe they said by this point that they were going to be giving some indication of when the debt and the deficit were going to begin going yeah. away. Yeah. And that seemed, when, when uh, Mr. Murnau was asked about this afterwards today, he dodged and danced and did not answer that question. Is that notable by its absence that they don't have an answer for that right now? Does that matter? Yeah, so let, let's do a couple of things here. First, when they got elected, they said they're only going to have $10 billion deficits. Uh, here's the good news. Last year at this time, they said the budget deficit for the fiscal year we're in was going to be $29 billion. Good news, it only came in at $26.5 billion. Going ahead to next year, $28.5 billion. So when you add that together, they've already shot past 
their guarantees. So kill that campaign promise. So he, he says, I got to say something. Since we're spending this money, what am I going to say? Ah, it's not about balancing the budget anymore. It's about watching our debt to GDP ratio, our gross domestic product. This is a bit like looking at your debt to your income. Can you carry the debt you have? Right now, uh, for every dollar of GDP, we have 31 cents of debt. And so what Mr. Morneau has said is, my pledge to you Canadians is for the next couple of years, I'm going to hold it at 31%. And then when we have the next federal election in a couple of years, we'll have dropped that down to 30.5%. And we're, we're moving it in the right direction. Now, again, in fairness to Mr. Morneau, among the developed world, uh, places like Japan, for instance, that same ratio is over 100%. Our debt-to-GDP ratio is the envy of the developed world. But under Mr. Flaherty and Mr. Harper, they said, I don't care about that ratio. I want to look at the absolute deficit. I want to wrestle it down to zero. Remember, again, just two years ago when we had that election, that was the year Mr. Harper said, I'm back to balance. And Canadians didn't vote for him. So the lesson that Justin took from that says, maybe I don't need to be as focused on balancing the budget. I just need to get these numbers to go in the right direction. If our economy starts to grow, and remember this is his gamble, I'm investing in infrastructure because I really want this economy to start growing, not at 1.3% a year, but 2, 2.5%, if he can make that happen by the time of the next federal election, we're not really going to care about what the debt level is as long as the reduction, those sorts of things are happening correctly. If it's not quite balanced, look at the growth that we're all enjoying. We will see. We got a couple of years left for him to uh, keep his fingers crossed and throw some chicken bones and do whatever else he is going to do to try and make that happen. But um, Marvin Ryder, always appreciate your insights. Thanks for doing this Between tonight. Now and then, maybe we'll have an LRT named Desire. Well done. Well done. He is not just an economics professor. He is a man who knows his pop culture. Marvin, thanks for doing this. Take care for now. Um, you know, and again, if you're wondering what he's talking about, you missed the very beginning of the show. We're chatting about the, uh, the poor guy on uh, Jeopardy. Kevin, who had every letter in a streetcar named Desire on the board for him, except for the M in named, and he still managed to get it wrong, and now is the butt of the joke around the world, including from Marvin Ryder. But that's, Marvin's not being mean. He's just one of the rest of us. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Baba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you tonight? Um, I, I, I can't believe these Maple Leafs. Maple Leafs are up 2 nothing on the Columbus Blue Jackets. They are better than Kevin. Did you see Kevin, by the way? Do you know what we're talking about? The, uh, the uh, incident on... Uh, Wheel of Fortune? Uh, yes. Okay, you saw Kevin. No matter how bad your day went today, Bubba, it was better than Kevin's. I can just tell you that. I'd have to agree that uh, <laughs> you, you really opened up yourself to a lot of criticism, and not just to your friends, but worldwide. <laughs> you know, the one good thing Kevin will have is that he's not going to have to show a passport at any airport in the world. He can just walk through and the guy's going to go, hey, Kevin, come on. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, we'll leave Perhaps Kevin we'll alone. We'll him back, though, just for... Oh, you know what? They have the week of champions on Jeopardy. Maybe on Wheel of Fortune they should have like the week of hilarity. <laughs> the worst gaffes of the year get to come back and try and sort it out. It's like a Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, so here's the thing. There, one of the, there's a couple things I wanted to get you on here for tonight, to, um, a couple sports topics. Uh, one of them, according to a report from Gary Lawless, 
you know, there's this big thing going on with the CFL in Regina right now. It's the combine and meetings and mm-hmm. fan fest and everything. It's a great event that they're having. It's fantastic they're doing this. According to a report from Gary Lawless, the CFL, though, in their discussions, is now considering giving e- replay officials even more power to make calls from the booth. They now want to not just let you slow the game down endlessly with a bunch of calls that seemingly a lot of the time they got wrong anyway. They want the replay officials now to be able to call penalties. How crazy is this league that it wants to keep moving more and more and more of its stuff up to replay anonymous, non-seen replay officials who frankly got it wrong a lot last year and now they want to give them more power. What's going on? And that's that's the problem. I mean, let's be honest. There has never been a time in the history of the Canadian game where officials have been this heavily criticized. Um, it's got to do with the amount of calls that there are out there, the uh, importance of really every game, the advent of technology. So everyone's under the microscope, and I guess the league is looking at you know the best ways to quote get the correct call, and you know have the game played you know fairly. But I just I, I'm really hoping, hey, you know, we've had lots of proposals in these meetings, right, uh, whether it be the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball have thrown out some crazy ones that we've recently talked about, and I'm hoping that this is just some fandangled idea to to maybe, you know, discuss amongst the general managers and coaches because to this, if this happens, never have I complained about the length of games in, in the CFL more than I did last year. Well, and here's the explanation, by the way, just for the clarification on what exactly they're talking about. If a coach throws his challenge flag because he believes that something has happened and the replay now goes up to the official, as the officials are reviewing the play, if they, in that thing, spot an infraction that was missed, they can then, according to this proposal, call it down. So it's not going to be every play that they can watch it, but, but that's where we're moving. And it starts to make me wonder at what point in this game... Honestly, and I, this started out as a silly, joking comment, but not anymore. At what point in this game do we say, we are simply going to take the officials off the field and have the entire thing called by people in a replay, honestly, in a replay booth with a hundred different camera angles, and at the end of each play, we'll have one official on the field who's, who blows the play dead, and then we'll have a group of people who will be looking at everything and calling down to him what's happening. It seems like we're heading that way. Let's take people right out of this. This is this is the ultimate in sarcasm, and and on top of that, the the referees union would not be very happy with you, Scott. Of course they wouldn't, and and I wouldn't be happy with it. Why do why do we want and we seem to we expect perfection, absolute perfection from the officials when we don't expect perfection from the athletes. We don't expect perfection from anyone else. Well, because no, well, well I don't know if the, the two can keep can be compared because the hum, human element of error is there is is allowed for the players, and unfortunately for the for the rule holders who are the officials of all sports, it's expected that the rule book, which is you know is different sizes in different sports, it, are, the rules are upheld um, and not interpreted differently by each individual official or referee. Some of them are, because not every rule is, is, is replayable or is reviewable. So some of the rules we insist on having absolutely right, and some of the rules we say, no, I guess we can live with having them wrong sometimes. And that's a problem, Scott, because, I mean, there needs to be consistency, right? I mean, and I think this is a problem. 
um, that needs to be, you know, addressed. And this could be not just for the CFL. This is for all sports. You can't, you know, we hear this all the time that, you know, say in hockey where, oh, I really like the officiating, the officiating tonight because they let the guys play. Well, what does that mean? I mean, that means so, uh, you know, infractions were allowed to happen on the ice without any, you know, uh, consequence. I mean, we're caught somewhere in the middle because you're right. Too many calls ruins any game. A constant fouls in basketball or too many trips to the penalty box for players in hockey slows the game down. So I think it's really up to the players and the officials to to respect the rules and, and play, you know, the way you're supposed to. I've always wondered, because in every sport, if you were to break down, Bob, if you were to break down every single sport and say, what is the one thing that you could, with computer technology, probably call the most consistently and that has the most inconsistency, it is the strike zone in baseball. And of all the things that you could have replay or could have a computer doing to get it right, that's the one that they fight the strongest against. And my question is, why do we want to get everything else in the game exactly right, except for the one thing where there are the most missed calls? I've, I've just, and I'm not lobbying to get rid of the umpires. Quite the contrary. I'd rather get rid of the replay. I just don't understand the thought process behind the whole thing. Well, because, hey, let's be honest, sports is big business. Winning, winning, winning keeps you alive. Losing can kill you. Losing means you can lose jobs. Uh, players can lose positions. And that's a problem because that's what sports has come down to because of the big money aspect of it. Uh, and, and again, if you, felt like, if you feel like you've been robbed by the official, well, because of the advent of sports and the way it's matured, we're able to challenge calls. And uh, as you said, you know, it slows down the game. And sometimes, you know, some officials are able to get, a, you know, the calls right. And we've seen even times where guys have gone to replay and still gotten it wrong. So I, I don't know what to do. I don't, I, I don't think you can. We've already, uh, um, we've, we've already inter- entered the video world, I'll say, and for most sports, including the CFO, which we're talking about right now, I just don't know how you go back, Scott. But you know what? You're right about the big business, and nothing gets people talking about sports, getting engaged in sports, feeling passionate about sports, than a, I mean, not, I shouldn't say nothing, but one of the things that does it is a blown call. And I'll tell you what, there have been, I don't know how many perfect games in Major League Baseball, the one involving the Detroit Tigers player, and I'll ask you if you can even remember his name. Orlando Galarraga. Armando, you're very close. Uh, that's okay. Um, that one had more people talking about it. If he had actually thrown a perfect game, fewer people would have talked about that than the fact that the perfect game was taken from him by a botched call with two outs in the ninth. He got more fame and more attention out of the missed call than the perfect performance. I'm sure you would have traded it all in for. I know game. he would have. No, <laughs> I, I, I. But, but you know what? He didn't have to because here's the thing: the fans knew. Right. The fans knew. In everyone's mind, essentially, he was a guy who threw a perfect game. He was. And and I'm just looking at this, going, if you're if you're big business, if you're sports, and you say, hey, one of the things we want to do is make sure people are talking about us and paying attention to us. The odd missed call is not the worst thing in the world. It really isn't. It may be to the players. But to the fans and to the business itself, man, you're going, that that gave us weeks of front page attention. and, and but, but of the negative sort, though, Scott. Somewhat. I somewhat. Mean, and, and really, quite honestly, it, it actually, 
Because if you remember the, 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 the sound after the reaction from the umpire once he realized what he had done yes. well after the game, it really humbled the man. Oh, he yeah, no, he was he was he was crying after the he game. He was. He was crying. And you know, and again, but it was all part of the the humanity of sports, and that's what I think we're losing by some of this. We're losing the humanity of sports. I mean, you can argue that the St. Louis Cardinals lost the World Series in 1985 because of the blown call on George Orta at first base. Mm-hmm. Or was it the other way around? Was it Kansas City? No, Kansas City won that year, right? Yes. Yeah, so St. Louis lost. You know, there there are parts of sports that should, in my mind, should be about the humanity. Of, you've got If you're going to have, here's the thing, if you're going to have umpires or officials or referees, period, let them do their job. If you're not going to have them, take them off the field and let us have perfect visions and perfect slow motion replays in 4K high definition and get everything perfect. But don't mix and match because it doesn't make any sense. That's it all does. I'm saying. You know, and you're right. But I just think that we're in a we're in a situation right now where you can't go back. Um, and at times, even though the officiating is generally probably 98% wrong, right? It's right. No, yeah, they're right? great. They're... We will always focus on the 2% that they get wrong. 100%. And the officials have never, and I know people blanch at this when we say this, they have never been better than they are right now. But the fa- you know what it is? It's the fact that you're sitting at home, you or anyone else, you, the big you, you're sitting at home and you're watching a game on a 60-inch 4K plasma TV with super slow-mo that's 400 frames per second. Sure. And you can spot now every time an official blows a call or misses a call by an inch. And you go, how? Remember the play in the playoffs a couple of years ago with the Blue Jays where, can't remember who it was, slid into second base and Troy Tulowitzki kept his glove on the guy's leg and they called it out and his foot had left had left the bag. That's right. I remember that game. By that's about right. a centimeter. Yeah. And you're right. going, wait a second. Okay. Yeah. You know what? The official missed it. Was that a blown call? That wasn't a blown call. There's not a person alive with eyes that could have seen that. And yet that, that umpire got credited with a blown call. But let me turn it around in another way though, Scott. Uh, 1990, I guess that would have been the 93 World Series. Not, or the 92 World Series. No, 93, I think it was. So w- would we have not, th- th- were the Blue Jays not robbed of a, of a triple play? 1992, Devon White, yep. When he caught the ball against the wall. Yeah, I was at that game. That's why I know okay, that. Okay, so like, wouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, that should have been the first triple play in, in World Series history. It was, and, and you know what? Uh, as much as that was a memorable moment and would have been, the fact that they didn't get it created more discussion than the fact that if they had. Anyway. I want. We got two minutes here. That's, it's a great argument. We can go on for hours with this one. But I got one other thing I want to ask you about. We only have a couple of minutes. Um, World Baseball Classic is going on right now. Uh, it has been met with mixed reception in many places, especially down in the Caribbean. It's been a wild, raging success. They have loved it down there in the states and Canada. Meh, so so. But Ian Kinsler, who's playing second base for Team USA, had this to say. After Team U, because of, by the way, they played. He says, I hope kids watching the WBC, the World Baseball Classic, can watch the way we play the game and appreciate the way we play the game as opposed to the way Puerto Rico plays or the Dominicans play, Kinsler said. That's not taking anything away from them. That just wasn't the way we were raised. They were raised differently and to show emotion and passion when you play. We do show emotion. We do show passion. We just do it in a different way. Basically, what he's saying is, the way you play baseball is you go out on the field, you keep a straight face, you don't show any passion or you don't show any emotion outwardly, and that's the right way to do it, and kids should grow up learning to play the game that way. Do you agree with him? 
I think that's actually what happens out there, and that's the way North Americans have been brought up. I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in hockey about about limiting your celebrations and how we look down on people in hockey who celebrate too hard after a goal or a save. And and for whatever reason, that mentality is in baseball as well too. I I agree. I I believe if I've done something correct. I should be able to celebrate. I uh, yeah, you know what? I disagree with Kinsler a thousand percent. What part of what has made the World Baseball Classic enjoyable? If you have watched any of it, absolutely, I've watched tons of it. It's been great. Is the huge amount of passion and celebration from especially the Caribbean teams? They have been so into this, and we go back now. I know the Texas Rangers don't exactly like this memory, but the Jose Bautista thing, the bat flip, that was a seminal memorable moment in Blue Jays history. Jose Bautista hitting that home run, it's a big deal even if he just drops his bat and runs around the bases. It's way more because of the fact that he celebrated that thing honestly and passionately in that moment. I, I just can't believe that that we've got American players and, can, and I, frankly, Canadian players, I'm sure, who would say, no, 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 just go out there, do your business, act like you've been there before, never celebrate, never show any emotion. That, that to me, is not sports. Sports well, is about emotion. It, I agree with you. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the final of the evening as, as the United States, uh, States play Puerto Rico. And you want to believe if Puerto Rico beat the United States of America in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium, you don't think they're going to party like it's 1999? Well, I don't know if it'll be like 1999, Prince, but uh, yes, I know, I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Like they're going to yeah. go, go crazy. Of course and they will. I, and I, would, I, I, may, I, I could be wrong here. It'll be interesting to see the division amongst the crowd. I, I, there may be more people cheering for Puerto Rico in that crowd I bet you there than will. the United States. But why do we not want this to be part of the regular part of baseball? See, to, to me, I, I never have had an issue with the bat flip. I've never had an issue with the bat. Now, if you are in game 47 of the season and it's the third inning and you're the leadoff guy and you hit a home run that barely goes over the fence, if you toss your bat almost into the other team's dugout and pimp all the way around the bases, that, that to me, yeah, I could, I could say, okay, that's a little much. But if you hit a walk-off home run, you should be celebrating. You should be doing something to show your passion. Like I said, I've said to you before, the home run is the greatest thing in baseball. And if you accomplish that, I mean, the only time it's not acceptable in my in, in my book, at least in my world, is if you're down eleven one and you hit a home run. That's another or, one. Or, or if you're losing thirty, you know, if the Tie Cats were, you know, were losing thirty four to nothing, and someone scored a touchdown and there was a celebration. Like, or or if it's the other way, or if you're up by. 12 nothing, and you hit a home run and you decide you're going to like show off around the there are moments when sure. you don't there are moments when you don't but in a moment that matters yep why would you not i don't know i think it's called emotion and and i don't i i i'm we look down and we poo poo on robotic players I, I i'm tired of robotic players I want players with emotion, and I mean that from uh, a broadcaster standpoint, and I mean that from a fan standpoint as well, too. Yeah, no, I'm 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 100 percent with you. I couldn't. I mean, I get what Kinsler is saying, kind of, but not really. I don't. Um, I, don't I, I don't. Well, he's don't. what he's saying is, look, we play it. we play a different style. I hope you can appreciate the way we do it too. We're just not as passionate as they are. I get kind of where he's coming from, but the flip side seems to be. We're doing what we do because we do it better or something like that. I don't know how you read it. I Look, 
if I'm if I am a baseball player, if I'm a hockey player, if I'm a soccer, well, soccer they do it any. I mean, soccer sometimes it's it's maybe a little over the top. Although goals are so rare that y- you have to celebrate. But if you score a big goal, if you do something majestic in a huge moment, I would expect and understand and tip my hat to you for celebrating and doing something big time. I would. And that's why I thought the whole thing with Bautista was so ridiculous from the start that Texas got bent out of shape about that. Because you want to know something? Had their guy done that in the same scenario in Texas, there is no chance. Could you imagine if, what's his name, little second baseman uh, who punched him in the face? Odor. Odor. If he had done that in Texas, you think he's dropping his bat, putting his head down and jogging slowly or jogging quickly around the bases and running to the dugout? No, we've already seen what he does over long singles. That's <laughs> true. Bubba O'Neill, you can watch him tonight on CHCH at 11 doing weather and sports. <laughs> Double timing tonight. Bubba, thanks for doing this tonight. Always a pleasure, Scott. That is uh, Bubba O'Neill again, 11 o'clock tonight. Luke, you want to jump in quickly? Yeah, yeah we, there's been a response from one of the Puerto Rican players. I, I think he's on the team. He is certainly in the major leagues. Christian Colon, who plays for the Royals. Uh, it's the truth. We got flair, and he don't. Well, it's true. It's true. And, and in North American sports, we have tried over the years to tamp down any kind of celebration. And, you know, there was one guy where it really came from was Barry Sanders, who said, when you get to the end zone, we played running back for the Detroit Lions, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. And I don't think in his career he ever spiked a ball. He just handed the ball to the referee. Now, that was his thing. That doesn't mean everybody has to do that. And... Equally, it doesn't mean that everybody has to do some sort of choreographed dance routine. But if it's an honest reaction, don't we like that in sports? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Story in the paper today as we move along. Story in the paper today under the headline, Concerns Raised as Canadians Spend More Time Online. This was a uh, Canadian press story that is, comes from a report from the Media Technology Monitor, which is a group that looks into this kind of stuff. Uh, by the way, if you're calling for the question, let the phones ring. Luke will get to you as quickly as he can. And if you can't get through, call back in a moment and the lines will open up. This report was from the Media Technology Monitor. says that Canadians now average 24.5 hours online per week, up about two hours from the previous year, which was 2015. This was last year. And if you are between 18 and 34 years old, your average time online is about 34 hours a week. So a day and a half, almost. Is this a concerning number? Should we be worried about the fact that we seem to be online an awful lot? Or should this be something we just say, well, no, that's just life. Well, Dr. Michael Van Ameringen is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. He's studied online behavior, and he joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. You're welcome. Uh, When I throw out that number, when I say 24 and a half hours a week that Canadians are now online, it sounds on its face like that's an awful lot of time. Is it? Well, again, it's hard to know what that number means because the way we use the uh, Internet has changed so much, and year by year, more and more of what is part of everyday life is done on the uh, uh, Internet. So if, if you 
if you take out non-essential kinds of um, a time, like using the internet for for work and for uh, education, um, it may not be actually that much time. Because I don't think in this study they separated out whether it was sort of stuff you had to do because of your occupation, or was this all just recreational kinds of uh, things? That I mean, that's a very good point, because if this was simply, if this was everything, if this was work included, I would actually say 24 and a half hours would seem pretty low for a lot of people. That's right. So if it's just, and, and again, I, I'm almost because of that, having to leap to the conclusion, which is, of course, horrible for science, but but that if, the, if this is... What would your opinion be if they found out or if they suggested in clarifying this that it was 24 and a half hours a week in recreational time? Would that be excessive? So, and, and even then, what you'd want, what want to think about is um, if that's three and a half hours a day and uh, about. And uh, if you think of how much the average um, Canadian watches TV a night, um, two to three hours a night, um, yeah, it's if, not far if, off. If you're communicating with, with friends or relatives, you might be on the phone, you might message them in some way, another half hour to an hour a night. It doesn't seem really excessive if you look at it that way. I mean, we've, we've moved entertainment pretty well onto the Internet for most, most people. We've moved a lot of sort of day-to-day services like banking, getting government information. That's all on the Internet, internet now. So those kinds of day-to-day things are part of what we do that used to be not done on the Internet and is now done exclusively on the Internet. And so if you were someone who had to do some banking, let's say, uh, you might very easily do 15 minutes to half an hour. I mean, that, that, that would not be an excessive number, and there's a good chunk of your daily use right, right off the bat that's not work time. Right, and if you were watching two, t- uh, you know, two TV shows that were an hour, there, there's there you, you know, go. It, it just it really adds up, you know, fairly quickly. So uh, when I see these numbers and think of how our use of the internet has changed, and the internet's really become our delivery uh, medium for almost everything we do in society, in that context, it doesn't seem horribly um, excessive. Okay, I, I think we're, we're more concerned about people who. Um, lose control of this. So it may not be a time thing as, as so much. We've been doing some um, work on internet addiction. That's what I was just going to ask you. Yeah, perfect. Trying to define what it, you know what it is. And we did this study on um, first-year McMaster uh, students. And um, what was really uh, interesting, it, there's all sorts of different ways to try to define it, but the rates in our study was anywhere from 12% to 42% of people had problematic use of the internet and we were looking at problematic use we were looking at addictive type behaviors that you would see in a addiction to a substance or to a behavior like gambling and instead of putting those terms in we would put the use of video streaming messaging uh, gaming etc and we were more concerned about those individuals who met sort of an addictive type profile um, uh, of one of their domains of internet use, those are the people we were really concerned because we found those people were using the internet over six hours a day um, for non-essential thing, not for school, not for work, and these people, their their use was interfering with their social relationships, with work, um, family expectations. They were not performing in those areas because 
of their um, so-called problematic use of the Internet. This group of people also seem to have a lot more of anxiety and depression and impulsivity, these people who we felt had problematic Internet use. So many things I want to jump on right there. Uh, first of all, before I get to the anxiety and depression, you do believe then, I, as I understand from what I'm listening, from what I'm hearing, you do believe in the concept that you can be addicted to the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, you, I think you can be ad- addicted to the, the Internet, and we probably see it more like a behavioral addiction. We now see gambling as a behavioral addiction, and that, it, that, it, that gambling uh, seems to cause the same kind of physiological response to someone who's, you know, addicted to alcohol, addicted to an opiate. Um, we think that there is a, ver- a, a subgroup of people who um, get addicted to the Internet in this same kind of way. But it, it's very hard to gauge it by sort of just their total time. The total time people spend on the, on the Internet didn't really differentiate the people who had the problem use or the more kind of addictive behavior from the people um, who didn't. So the, the time, you know, you have to be careful with that. But what, but what you raise when you raise the idea of Internet addiction being a real thing, and, and uh, is that if I was an alcoholic, for example, and I was addicted to alcohol, I can work to end that addiction or at least prevent myself from falling further into it by not drinking. Mm-hmm. If I have a gambling addiction, I cannot gamble and I can stay far away from casinos and racetracks and everything yeah. else. As you mentioned a moment ago, it would be almost impossible in our modern society to not use the internet. So if you do have an internet addiction, it seems like you really would have a very difficult time not feeding that addiction. No, it, it, and it's problematic. And it, it, with any type of addiction, the sort of cues that remind you of what you're addicted to uh, often trigger it. So, but I mean, if if you were dealing with some of these things, there are different kinds of softwares that could, say, block your use of of going to a number of different sites which you can install on your computer. We know some some students when they're studying, they will put softwares on their mobile device so they can't access Facebook, can't access Instagram. Their their phone blocks it so they're not dealing with the temptation to do it. So there there are ways to kind of work with it, but it's much more difficult than in, in some ways than dealing with an alcohol addiction or a gambling addiction. So the idea, you mentioned that you have found that the people who spend an awful lot of time online and potentially are addicted mm-hmm. also have connections to anxiety and depression. Do we know, do we have any idea if people who are anxious and depressed find solace then online, or is it the amount of time online that is causing people to be depressed and anxious? In, in, in our study, we, we just looked at people at one time point, so we can't tell that. So is it, we, we really don't know if, it, if um, people who um, are prone to internet addiction have uh, you know, more risk for psychiatric um, uh, problems and have, as a result, more problems. Or is it that, that, that the, the use of being on the Internet for so many hours and, and it consuming you, does it cause other psychiatric problems? That's, you know, not clear at, at this point. So for a parent, for a grandparent, whoever's listening, you, you, this, this whole thing, the whole idea of the amount of time people are spending online, you know, if you're an adult, uh, it's, it's really up to you. You're responsible for your behavior, quite frankly. Yeah. But if you are a parent or a grandparent and you've got kids that you are now overseeing, yeah. how do you 
When do you become concerned about that kid? What, what cues are there out there when you start to say, you know what, that is okay and that is too much and we got to do something about this? Well, I, I think things like, like um, that your kids um, are on it all day and or they won't go to, to bed after they've already been on it four or five hours, that kind of thing. I mean, we do recommend to uh, uh, parents to limit the, um, the amount of time so, you know, that there's a chunk of time that, that they can go, go on and give kids a warning that, you know, at a certain point it's, it's going off and having a, a period of time that's free of screens before bed because we know that being on screens just before bed stimulates people. But really working at limiting the amount of time to, you know, I, I think it's unrealistic to, that there's nothing, but, you know, there, 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 there needs to be, much like when kids would watch TV all night, some limits on how much you can, time you can spend online or messaging. You know, um, a lot of families won't allow their kids to have their cell phones in their rooms at night. It's kind of they're left on the, the dining room table kind of thing. That's, and, you know, that's, in the bedroom. that's a great point. Well, and we just, we've got a minute left here, but it's a great point, too, because once upon a time, when you talked about how a kid could be up all night watching TV, if the TV was in the family room or in the den, as a parent, you could tell when your kid was up all night watching TV. Yeah. It's much more difficult now with iPhones and smartphones and tablets and iPods and TVs and everything else that can all be in a kid's room. Now, it's, you could easily lose track of what they're doing. You, you really have to take their de- devices away or have them. And I've had parents who take their devices at 9 o'clock at night and they, they lock them in their bedroom and they get them back in the morning because it's the only way of controlling it. Because with the mobile kind of access, you can have it on any device, a tablet, a, a, a smartphone, et, et cetera. So, um, you know, that's kind of some of the things that people have to do to put those kind of limits. Because, we, you know, we see these kids going to look for their devices in the middle of the night sometimes. Mm. And if the kids are left to have their phones and their devices, they're, they're dealing with every message at 3 in the morning, at 4 in the morning. The kids aren't sleeping, that kind of thing. So, you know, taking the devices away from the bedrooms at bedtime, and et cetera, is something we would recommend. Probably not a bad idea for some of us adults, too, to, well, <laughs> to take it well. out of our room, get to, to reduce our own addiction, quite frankly. Uh, Dr. Michael Van Amergen, uh, McMaster Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Um, I, I, as I was preparing to talk to him, I'll be honest, I was trying to think of how much time I spend online every day. Now, part of it is work. For sure. A lot of it is work. My job requires me to be tapped in for sure. But would I eclipse the 24 and a half hours a week? I bet I do. In fact, I, I haven't done the math. I probably am a little fearful to do the math. Luke, how long would you say on average, take a guess. I'm not asking you to do math. Guess how many hours a day you would be on the internet. How many hours or am I online? Awake? Oh, oh, okay. So it's as long as you're awake, you're on. And again, that's... That's why I believe in the numbers in this study, it's, it's unclear what they actually mean. Because if it is the, that it's 24 and a half hours a week that you're online, to me, that's exceptionally low. Because when I'm at work, my internet is hooked in all day long. I'm not necessarily on the internet all the time, but you're off and on and off and on. That seems like it would be kind of low. If you're working, that's three and a half hours a day. And with work, and I think this must be voluntary time or free time 
but he, you know what? It's, it's, it is a little frightening. It is a little frightening if we are considering, if we're assuming, and forgive me for that, because this is a scientific, scientific study and I'm making an assumption and that's the first thing that you do to make sure a study isn't worth anything. But if you assume, reading between the lines, that what they are saying is, this is not your work time, this is your free time that you are spending 24 and a half hours a week, that's a lot. But then between 18 and 34-year-olds, it's 34 hours a week, and it's going up by a couple hours a week every year. There is a point, is there not, at which we must become a little bit concerned that the balance between actually interacting with human beings and only being online has tipped so far to one side that you become incapable of actually interacting with people anymore. That would be my interpretation. There's nothing wrong with being online. But surely there has to be some other time for some other stuff. I'm not always good at that, I'll be honest with you. My, my wife might tell you that occasionally I tip too far to the one side. I'm not going to argue that. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.